When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, everybody, back to the Oklahoma Drill Podcast. I am your host, Andrew. I got my co-host, Matt, here with me as per usual. We are through another week of Jets preseason, the second of three weeks, uh, closing in on the end of preseason as a whole. After Monday night, the Jets had a come-from-behind victory over the Atlanta Falcons. They had a good week of joint practices, which, as we had said the week before, Matt, we were hoping to see that they would be the better team. And from all indications, that's what we heard throughout camp. You get through the game itself. And the Jets really didn't play any of their starters. No starters on offense. Most of their starters on defense didn't play. And the Falcons played their ones for a good bit of the game. And the Falcons got ahead. But as we saw as the game went on, the Jets were able to rally from behind, never get down on themselves. And once things became backups on backups, the Jets took over and were the better team again. So I just wanted to get into your brain, Matt. What was your overarching thoughts from the game in Atlanta? And then we'll get into some breaking news that we got for today. Um, well, let's see. It's it was a game that was very forgettable to start for sure. Uh, all we could see is the offense doing what we've seen the offense do for a very long time, which is stall very quickly, uh, not be productive at all. And then the defense just allowing the, the offense to storm down the field. But in the context of we only had four to five starters actually playing, um, it's not that bad, especially considering the defense held them to mostly field goals other than one touchdown. Yeah. Uh, it was Hall's probably worst game ever uh, that I've ever to seen put it going back to even college. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't seen him get beat like that. Uh, but in the end, I, I, it, it all seems to work out. I mean, I think Salah's undefeated in preseason so far. He is. I might be yes. making that up, but, but no, you're not. he that does is have true. one tie. Uh, that's so not a loss. Is, it, he was not off. defeated. He is. Not he has defeated. never been <laughs> defeated in the preseason. If that's not what undefeated means, then I don't know what it does. <laughs> so th- these guys find a way. Uh, and it's kind of the, the mindset that we were kind of hoping for with solid that a team that uh, doesn't get down on themselves when things aren't looking their way, like it did at first in that game. And they find a way. 
Uh, we saw it last year in preseason. We saw it this year so far in preseason, both games. Uh, now we would love to see that transition into the regular season where they finally pull out some of these wins that maybe uh, don't look like they will be to start. No, and there's something to that for sure. This is now the second week in a row the Jets have come from behind and won. And Jets teams of old, especially in the first week, their quarterback goes down in the beginning of the game on the second drive, and and it seems like the world is ending, and they don't quit, and they keep fighting, and they come back and are able to win that game at the start of the season against the Eagles, and now they do the same thing against the Falcons this week. It was a good showing. And that's what you were encouraged to see. It's really hard to judge your backup players when they're going against another team's starters, even if that team is supposedly one of the weaker units in the league. It's still the NFL. Everyone's a professional and everyone's first string is going to be pretty solid. There's going to be good players on every roster. And so the Falcons should have had the lead early. It would have been a really bad look on them, particularly if it didn't. And as we'll get Mm -hmm. into later, as things go on, they were trying to win. They game planned for that game. They were very particular and very aware of what the Jets were doing on defense and tried to counter it offensively, and it worked. That's how things should have gone for Atlanta. And then once things got more even, I think you saw the overall talent of the Jets roster kind of take over. We've seen players that they've cut, like Elijah Riley is one off the top of my head, that they just cut this last uh, cut down to get down to 80 players, got picked up by the Steelers on waivers. Players on the Jets are going to be on other teams' active rosters that aren't going to fit on our active roster. And it's the first time in a while that they can say that. So I think overall, this game was a good showing. We saw what we were expected to see, given the circumstances of who was playing. Little concerned about Bryce Hall, but he supposedly had a really nice practice yesterday, had an interception in the red zone, was able to rebound. And luckily, we know that he's probably not going to be one of the outside starting corners anyway. So we can not have to have too much worry of how our number four corner is going to hold up. Let's get into the breaking news of the day. Just a few hours ago, it was revealed that Denzel Mims, through his agent, has officially requested a trade and made public that he has requested a trade. Uh, As we've seen, former second round pick in 2020, that 2020 draft class for Joe Douglas is not looking so hot. This is just another piece to the fire. Mims has really been overtaken by a handful of other players on the roster. They drafted Elijah Moore the year after, signed Corey Davis in free agency just this past spring, used the 10th overall pick on Garrett Wilson. We've seen the emergence of Braxton Berrios and the subsequent re-signing of Braxton Berrios as well as some other players throughout the roster, either in waiver pickups or depth pieces that are seemingly just making more of an impact on a down-to-down basis. And as we've seen from what Mims's agent has said, I thought it was a very politically sound statement. I don't think it was a scorched earth. Uh, this team is is ripping me up and I can't stand being here anymore. It seems like a guy who wants an opportunity to play and realizes that he's too far down on the depth chart to make an impact. And he wants out to save his career while he still can. I'm curious to see what they'll get back in terms of trade assets. And it seems like the Jets know they won't get much. And that's why they don't want to trade him because they would rather keep the depth. But this is an interesting situation because my gut says that he's going to be moved. I'm not sure where. I'm really not sure what team is going to be the one to take a flyer on him. But I really think that he is not going to be on the active roster by the start of camp. I think he's going to have a new team. I agree. Uh yeah, I was just looking over the, the statement from his agent. Uh, and yeah, most definitely not scorched earth. And, and no, in fact, I would all. say he it's the opposite. It's kind Agreed. of like a, a desperate plea, really, to Joe Douglas. Like it's a good way to Joe put Douglas it. has always done the right has done right by Denzel, and we trust that he will do everything in his power to find him another team where Denzel can be a contributor. It, yeah, it sounds 
more like he knows that JD holds the cards here. There really is no leverage for Mims exactly and and company. Uh, And the only thing they can do is kind of plead to them, like, "Come on, we we know that he's not doing much on the Jets. Like, let's." Let's give him a chance to, to do something somewhere else. And that's mostly true. I don't disagree with that sentiment because, like you're saying, he's being passed on the depth chart by guys like Smith, by guys like Calvin Jackson. I think even Tariq Black, Black was getting I went back Tariq and Black rewatched was... this game. Tariq Black had a really nice game. He stood out to me a lot as a guy that's a bigger receiver. And that's really the one thing the Jets are lacking outside of Corey Davis. Most of their starting receivers are small. Tariq Black, 6'2", 210, similar to Denzel Mims, who's about 6'3", 200. He was really impressing me with some of the ways he was playing towards the end of the game. And it seemed like even he was above the depth chart than Mims was. So there's a lot of guys ahead of him. A lot of guys. It seemed like he was just coming in with like the the last string guys with the Strevlers. Uh, it's it just seemed like he was an afterthought, uh, which is a shame because of all the attention he's gotten in the past for whatever, whether it's injuries or or uh, sicknesses, uh, not being in uh, the shape that he wants to be in. Uh it's been a long road to get to this point when we actually kind of thought that maybe this is the time when he turns things around and it doesn't seem like anything's really changed as far as uh, his place on this team. It doesn't seem like they have the confidence in him uh, to, to be that guy that we all hoped he would be. And that kind of just shows the, the, the writing on the wall too, that he probably wasn't going to make this roster so if he can find a trade partner, great. But I don't know what he can even get for Mims at this point. Yeah, and unfortunately for, for Denzel himself, and I agree, this was really his only option. And I don't, I'm not upset at him for making this move. I'm never going to be upset at a player for trying to make the most out of their career while they still can, while they're still healthy, while they're still young, while their body is still functioning and they still have a chance. Go and get every opportunity that you can and fight tooth and nail for it because this is a tough business and the teams will cut you and leave you on the street just as quick. So I'm not going to sit there and say anything against Denzel Mims for trying to make the most of his career. First things first, I don't want to see or hear any Jets fans or anybody have any negative to say about this guy because of this. Like I'm leading with that and I'm going to hold everyone to that as best I can. That said, you're hurting your own leverage because now teams know you want out. Now teams know that you're unhappy, that, that there is some sort of friction that they don't have to try and, and pry you away from the team that they know there's already friction there. That's going to drive down value of offers especially for Joe Douglas. This was his second ever draft pick. This was a former second, second round pick just a couple of years ago. They're not going to want to flip and have a a real negative return on investment where they invest a a second round pick in somebody. And three years later, they're getting back a conditional sixth. That's not a good look. And on top of that, I don't know what teams with a real need for receivers are going to think that Denzel Mims is going to solve their problem at this point to where they can come in this late into camp through preseason. Just as of the night we're recording this, the season starts literally in two weeks. That's going to be a heck of a transition to come in and expect for him to get starting reps for another team. I've seen the bears commonly thrown out from jets fans after this news uh, saying Justin Fields could use the help. I don't know if that's going to be that much of an impact for Justin Fields. So I really (laughs) think that, that his only options quite honestly, Matt are to hope that a contender wants to add depth. 
And so the two teams off the top of my head that I think would even make possible sense, and I'm not saying I expect either of these to happen, but they're the only real teams I can think of that I think would potentially throw a flyer his way would be the Chargers, the Chiefs, or the Rams. They're Super Bowl caliber rosters that live through their passing attack, that love having plethora of receivers, and they don't want to be in a situation where if their second or third guy goes down, that that might really affect them in the playoffs later down the line. I could see a Kansas City offering a conditional sixth that might move up with playing time. I could see the Rams doing the same thing. I could see the Chargers wanting to maximize as much as they can with Justin Herbert. I think it's got to be a situation like that for this to materialize. And quite honestly, at the end of the day, I'm not sure it's going to. I, I don't think so either. Uh, another part just jumped out from the statement uh, is that he never really got the opportunity to groove, get in a groove with the starting offense. Well, here's the thing. He has been with the third and second stringers this entire time, and he never really built a groove with them either. Yep. So what would have it even shown if he did get those starting reps? Uh, so I, I just don't know with, with Mims. Like it, maybe yeah. he's just going to be a late bloomer and he'll thrive somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I just don't see any leverage really for anybody for no. him to go to a, to a team where he will get starting reps. I don't see that as a possibility uh, or JD getting any kind of value in return. It's kind of a lose, lose for everybody. It really is. And that's why I think we both agree that it's not likely to materialize into anything. And I'm not saying I think he's going to get cut, but I think they don't want to trade him. I, I think Apparently, there have been teams that have been making offers for a while and the Jets have been adamant about not trading him because I think they know that he's a physical talent and they want to have some amount of depth. And mm-hmm. while he is getting overpassed, that's critical that just like any other team, like I was talking about that are contenders, that you lose a guy in the middle of the season. And we saw how quickly the Jets were down to nobody at receiver at the end of last year. And Mims was one of the nobodies. So, you know, it's a question of of how much he can improve. And the last thing I want to uh, make the point of, again, harping, going back to the fact that I'm wishing nothing for success for him. I hope that he can be is a late bloomer and finds a new home and thrives and succeeds. And I don't care if it makes Joe Douglas look bad or the Jets look bad or anything. I have nothing against Denzel Mims in this situation, and there's no reason for me not to want him to thrive. But we all know why he didn't get with the ones. And everyone heard it from the coaching staff because he didn't learn every receiver spot and he was behind in learning the receiver spots, whether it was because he was sick or rehabbing from an injury or whatever the, the issue was, that was a big stickling point for the coaching staff. And Michael Floor in particular was we want our guys to know every spot so they can be versatile. And with our motions and our shifts and our alignments that we need guys to be able to pick their matchups and get exploited against good looks. And they need to know every spot and able to be able to do that. And from all, from what we heard, Mims wasn't there yet mentally. So it's not like you didn't get the opportunity to get, get in the groove with the starters. You didn't get there mentally enough to get in the groove with the starters in the first place. So I, I'm again, I'm hoping I'm wishing success for him, but that is a point to me that I was like, yeah, there's a reason for that. And I'm not going to, I'm not just going to let that slide. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do my own drafts right alongside the, the Jets GM. Uh, and every year for a couple of years, for almost a half a decade, uh, 
now. So it's I've picked Mims as well. So he's a guy I had a lot of confidence in. Same I, here. I was very excited when they took nothing him. but the best. Yeah, I, a lot of people were. I think when we got Mims, everybody was sold on the fact that he was going to be uh, kind of fighting for a true number one wide receiver job. And the fact that he hasn't yet uh, has been a huge disappointment, uh, a, a huge letdown for uh, the fans, for what they thought that we had, and for JD uh, making that trade and kind of putting himself on the map by even letting uh, Mims get as far as he did and thinking uh, that uh, – he had the leverage and the know-how to, to wait on Mims and to see that he would be available when he was available. Uh, I remember when that pick went down, everybody was like, wow, JD's got some balls of steals. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the first time we said that. And it, w- it wasn't the last time. Uh, unfortunately, it just hasn't worked out. And like I said, I wish nothing but the best for him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want that to be the takeaway for everybody is that Denzel Mims is not doing anything wrong. I don't think the Jets have done anything wrong to Denzel Mims, and we're hoping success for him, whether it's here or somewhere else. That's There's no reason for us not to just wish success for this guy. All right, let's get into the topic of the week. And we've been hyping this up on Twitter a little bit, but everyone that is a fan of this podcast or follows us should know what's coming. We need to talk about this defense. And more importantly, we need to talk about this defensive scheme. So, Matt, I'm going to let you go ahead and give the rundown of, of how things have been going and the vibe of everyone online before before I kind of give my little rant that I've been hyping up for a little bit. Well, even before this preseason, just going back to last year, mm-hmm. uh, a lot has been made about the philosophy and the scheme of our defense and the rigidity of it and how Ulbrich and Sala have been unwilling to really change their ways. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with how they even just approach things pre-snap. And we were talking about with the Falcons and how they knew what was coming. And it was very easy for them to to game plan around that. And it had great results. So it's this kind of mentality that we saw all of last year, which led to one of the worst defenses in the league. And a lot of fans are rightfully scared. What if things are just that, that that teams are like going to be going to be like the Falcons and that they figured us out. They figured the scheme out and we're going to have another bad season on defense, not because we don't have the talent this time, but because the scheme is outdated the scheme has been figured out and they are too stubborn to change. And it's a legitimate fear. It's a legitimate concern. Uh, it's definitely one that's been on my mind the, the last week or two. Uh, but I think you really need to dig down deep into what this defensive scheme is uh, in order to really understand it from their point of view. And to maybe just see what else is out there. Like, how can we transition? Yeah, that's going to be the key is, is how can we transition? And more importantly, will there even be one? Because there's no guarantee that there will be. And I think that's important for everyone to remember at the top. 
is that there's nothing that indicates that any change is coming. Nothing. Not from any history of this defense, not from any history of our coaching staff, nothing. There is no reason to believe that things are going to change. The reason that things changed with Robert Sala in particular two years ago when he was in San Francisco and everyone said, oh, look at him. He found ways to go about the defense and, and counter things. They lost pretty much every major contributor on their defensive line that year. They were really lacking pass rushers. They couldn't run the scheme that they wanted to run because they were lacking the pass rush that makes it potent to start with. And they had a very, very experienced secondary that had been playing together, at least the two safeties and some of the corners, for a while. The other corner was Richard Sherman, who is a Hall of Famer who had been in the scheme his entire career, had a great relationship with Sala, and is one of the smartest football players to ever touch the field. They were, had the ability to change on the fly and to try out some new wrinkles and add some different things to their defense to counteract their lack of production on the defensive line and really play into the strength of their secondary. Last year, the Jets didn't have any of that. And they're installing a new defense. They're teaching these players their scheme. They're teaching the rules. They're teaching the keys and the, the tendencies that they focus on for offenses where to allow their players to click and close as fast as possible. And there was a lot of youth. And it was expected to be a rough transition. The Jets were lacking a lot of talent on defense. Their biggest defensive acquisition in Carl Lawson never played a snap for the entire regular season. They were starting a fifth round, second year player at corner who had like three or four starts under his belt the entire time the year before. Another sixth round rookie on the outside, on the other side, and an undrafted free agent second year player in the slot. Or, and, a, and another rookie in the slot subbing in with an undrafted free agent. <laughs> they went through about eight different safeties over the course of last year. I know everyone was expecting for me to come on here and rip a hole into Ulbrich and Sala. What the heck were else were they supposed to do? They couldn't change on the fly and install a crazy new complex defense like we see from Dean Pease and the Falcons or Wink Martindale in Baltimore or Bill Belichick and his times in the Patriots or Wade Phillips when he was with the, with the Rams or when he was with Denver or anywhere in between. They couldn't just create a new defensive scheme, teach it in a week on these guys that were practice squad players before they were having to start for the Jets at a necessity and expect things to work out. So I want to take away a little bit of what we saw from last year and the horrors that we saw from last year and think that there is going to be some level of improvement from there. Now we need to get to the bad part. And the bad part is that this is still a disgustingly simple defense and that they are running quite literally the equivalent of a high school scheme and that these are the same sort of principles and coverages that you're teaching average players all across the country that aren't even going to sniff a college offer, let alone the NFL. The NFL knows how to beat this defense. Cover three press bail took over the NFL after the Seahawks got good in the early 2010s and multiple coaches from that coaching tree got head coaching jobs and coordinator jobs all over the league, and a bunch of other teams started running it. So a bunch of offenses had to prepare for it. And the NFL, as anyone who follows this sport is going to know, is a copycat league. Every team is going to take something from any other team, and if they see they have a tough defense that they can't figure out and they watch another team beat it, they're just going to copy the game plan. That's to be expected. So when you look at this defense and you look at this scheme, 
there's only so much talent can do to improve it. Point blank, period. One of the main problems that the Eagles were getting the Jets with, and I posted a clip of this on Twitter, was a sale concept. It was where they scored their opening touchdown to Dallas Garner. Came on the same play. A sale concept, for those that don't know, is a combination of three receivers to a side, usually involving a receiver, a tight end, and a running back, where the receiver is going to run a go route, the tight end is going to run a corner to the same side, and a running back is going to run out as a little flat or a flare to draw a defender underneath. And what it does is it creates a high-low conflict for whatever curl-flat defender is playing that cover three. The go route takes away the vertical, the tight end comes around behind the curl-flat, and the running back out in front of him gives him a choice. He can either get depth and cover the tight end on the corner and leave the running back wide open in the flat with room to run, or he can come up shallow to play the running back and the tight end will be open behind it. It's a noted cover three beater and it has been for years. It's not a simple, it's not a complex play call. It's a play call that's in every single offense in the NFL. And any single offensive coordinator worth their salt is going to be able to see cover three free snap and either audible to it or have it in the game plan to expect it. They should know this is coming. And from what I heard from Sawa today when he was asked about this directly in terms of how he would feel about changing his defense or the philosophy difference between a guy like Dean Pease in Atlanta, who he was just coaching against, and himself, Sawa said all the right things you would hope to say and say that we've been in this scheme and coaching it and been around it for so long, we know all of its weaknesses. We know how teams want to attack us. We know where they're going to want to focus. We know the beaters. So they know how to key in on it and hopefully react to those plays faster and take them away. I hope he's right. That's all I can say is I hope he's right. Cause I went back and I checked Matt on the first drive of the game on defense against the Falcons, where the jets defensive backups are playing against the Falcons starters. I'm being hundred percent serious when I say this, and I really wasn't expecting to see this, but this is what I saw. They called spot drop cover three bail on the first Five straight plays. So the f- every play, the first five <laughs> plays was cover three with about eight yards steps from the corners. Exactly the same alignment. Any shift from the Falcons, they'd move a tight end over. The safeties would tw- switch responsibilities based on the offensive strength. Same play call, cover three. Falcons ate it up. Uh, that's a problem. Let me, let me I don't care if it's preseason. Though. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so. After watching that against the Falcons and even the Eagles, how much of that did you see last year during the regular season? I Not as often. Was it the similar amount of coverages? Yes. Was it mainly cover three and cover six on early downs with some cover one or some blitzes mixed in on third down? Yes. But very rarely did I see them line up in the exact same play over and over and over for the entirety of a drive. The Falcons were were down in the red zone. The first time they got in the red zone, they called cover three. It was a run play. The Jets stopped it short for a couple of yards. They switched to a cover two the next play, went back to cover three on third down, and that's when they forced a field goal. This just got me thinking. Maybe all of this is by design right now in, in preseason, that they want to face these offenses, and they want these offenses to attack us like this. Because like he said, he they all know the weaknesses and they know that this is a weakness and they want game reps against these weaknesses to really iron things out. And the best way to do that is to be as transparent as possible and see what your guys do in those situations. And I think there is part of that. 
especially considering that these were the backup players and that these were not their regular starters on defense for the most part, although some did play as starters. But most of their players were backups, especially in the secondary, outside of LaMarcus Joyner, who I've already said plenty of my time on him and my worries for him. They had to give these guys an opportunity to get some tape on of them running their base coverages against some advantageous looks for offenses to see what needs to be cleaned up. I don't disagree that there is definitely something to that, but this is the point for me specifically. And this is where I've heard and I know what you're alluding to. And I know you're very good at your job to where you're able to set things up like this. People have said, maybe they're hiding things for the regular season. It's the preseason. They don't want to give away all of their defense and, and mix in all the wrinkles and put everything on tape. And there's absolutely truth to that. By no means should the Jets be opening up their whole playbook during these preseason games. That said, as you said at the very start of the segment, Matt, philosophy, that's the problem. The philosophy of this defensive scheme and this coaching staff boils down to this very simple point. Offenses are incredibly multiple. They're incredibly complex. They're incredibly fast. They're incredibly deceptive. And so if you as a defensive player are trying to keep track of every single thing the offense is doing, follow to every shift, adjust to every motion, key on key in on every formation, and have all of this information going on in your head, when so many offenses, including our own that we run on this very same team, are built around deception and making a bunch of plays look similar from a bunch of varying different formations to confuse defenses and to get players thinking instead of attacking, their answer defensively is we're not going to bother trying to outsmart you. We're not going to bother trying to take away what we think is going to be your number one option and build a coverage that's specifically built for this defense. in this week, we're not going to be Bill Belichick. We're not going to be Wink Martindale, who is going to play press up at the line, mug his linebackers, send extra pressure as much as he possibly can and dare you to adjust and play the way you're intending to play as you normally would against any other defense against his defense and see how it fares. And he's going to dictate the game and make the offense change what they're going to do. Salah's philosophy is basically the opposite of we want to be passive. We want to keep everything in front of us. We want to rally and tackle. We want to be able to react when we need to react. We don't want our players to waste time thinking. Thinking is going to lead to miscommunication. Miscommunication leads to busts. Buster big plays, buster touchdowns. We don't want that. We want to be able to, quote unquote, bend but not break, tighten up when we have to. And when we get teams into those third and long situations, when we know they're passing, that's when we'll mix in something. We'll send some extra pressure. We'll send a stunt. We'll send a corner blitz. We'll play some man coverage instead of zone. That's when we'll try and take our chances on those got to have it situations. And the harsh reality is that there is evidence that this works and there's evidence that it doesn't. And both of those evidences are on our team. Because as I've said before, you know, Matt, I did a study on this scheme last year during the season where I went through every single successful team that's run this scheme since the Seahawks first started it in about 2011. And one of the constants was that you needed a bunch of all pro talent, basically at every level of your defense. You needed an offense that was top 10 in scoring. And the other constant was Robert Sala. That was that he was at every single spot. He was in Seattle as a defensive quality control coach under Pete Carroll to learn the scheme at its best. He moves on to Jacksonville as a linebacker coach 
under Gus Bradley. They draft Jalen Ramsey. They sign A.J. Bouye. They have a plethora of pass rushers on their defensive line. Their defense moves on to be great. Then he goes and gets the coordinator job in San Francisco. It takes a couple of years, but eventually they're one of the five best defenses in the league. Now he's in New York. There's something to that. And you look at Jeff Ulbrich, who I'm going to end this segment by defending, by saying, I've seen a lot of people come at Ulbrich and say, oh, he's got to go and, and he doesn't know what he's doing and he's just calling the same plays. He's doing what his head coach wants. This is not Jeff Ulbrich's defense. It's Robert Sala's defense, too. And to sit there and think that Ulbrich is the one fully deserving of blame and not realizing that this is a team-wide mentality that's been specifically crafted and Sala hired Jeff Ulbrich because they're, they are both knowledgeable and skilled in this type of scheme, that's asinine to me. So if anyone's throwing crap at Jeff Ulbrich, they need to be throwing it at Robert Sala too. That said, Jeff Ulbrich's history as a linebacker coach is exemplary. He is hand-built some of the best linebackers the NFL has seen from when they were in college and then when they got to the NFL and the the players that he had, where he had Eric Kendricks and Anthony Barr at UCLA. Uh, he's able to go to Atlanta. He mentors Deion Jones. There's He adds, oh, who's the other one that they had in Atlanta that played next to Deion Jones for a little bit? Foisei wow. Oakun just signed mm-hmm. a giant deal with the Jaguars when he was under Jeff Ulbrich, had his best year of his career. These guys have proven that they know what they're doing. And so I'm not going to sit here and say, I know better than these guys who have been around this, this scheme where it's been successful practically everywhere. But outside looking in, a lot has to go right. And it's not just going to be reps and experience and learning this defense better and another year of experience is going to just automatically fix the problems. This is going to be a team-wide adjustment. The offense needs to click. The defensive line needs to be getting pressure. The corners need to to stand up and be able to handle their pass off responsibilities. There's a lot that has to go right. And so I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm not concerned because I think you can have all the talent in the world, but a sale concept is still going to be good against cover three. Screens are still going to be good. Trap runs are still going to be good. You're going to have, like we saw Monday night with the Atlanta Falcons, they had a wide open play down the sideline to the tight end that wasn't Kyle Pitts in man coverage against Bryce Hall, and it was a switch release. Bryce Hall takes the inside vertical, while Marcus Joyner's the curl flat, who's supposed to carry the other number two vertical, gets caught in the backfield looking at the flat route, lets the guy run right behind him for a giant game. Those plays are still going to be good. There's a reason the Falcons looked so good against the Jets because Arthur Smith was trying like hell to beat the Jets defense in a preseason game. To me, that says they kicked their butts in practice. To me, that says the Jets were even better than we expected when the starters were in and that Arthur Smith said, dang, I need to give my team some confidence. I need to go out there and prove that we can do this and that I don't want to get embarrassed on national TV and I want to make my guys look good. They were trying like hell to beat the Jets defense. They called every cover three beater they could think of to do it. That is a good sign to me. So I know a lot of people and they still lost. Yeah, (laughs) and they still lost. And the second things got to back up on back backups on backups, they still lost. I'm I expected to come in here a few days ago and, and you know take the flamethrower. But I went back, I rewatched, I thought about things, I listened to these guys talk, and I'm not going to say that I'm falling for the speak, because I'm not. But I can look at history and say that it means just as much that you need a bunch of talent for this scheme to succeed and that teams know how to, to have crafted a million different ways to beat it with play calling. All of that is true. 
it's just as true that Robert Sala is the only coach that's been on every team where this has succeeded. And that means something too. It really does. Uh, and you know what? I was kind of prepared to go into this and with the flamethrower as well. Uh, I have had my doubts about all this, uh, the, the philosophy the scheme. Uh, and it just gets me thinking, like, what if it doesn't work? Because there's still a chance that it doesn't work. There's, Even there's if, reason to be doubtful. Let's be very clear about doubtful. that. Is that it's not scorched earth, but there's reason to be concerned. There's reason to be concerned. And that gets me thinking about transitions. If they were to transition to something. Uh, I don't think that they would transition to something that's completely different either. I think maybe they just start to let their trusted players on defense be a little bit more autonomous with decision makings and maybe allow them to make a a few pre-snap adjustments here and there, Uh, but while keeping most of the defense the same. Uh, Maybe something as small as that. Uh, I I don't know. How, How do you see it? How do you think that they could transition to something else if it does seem like what they're doing just doesn't work anymore? Yeah, this is the tricky part about that is that, and as Robert Sala was basically asked this question directly uh, in his press conference this afternoon, I don't remember the reporter that asked that, but whoever it was, I very much appreciate them for asking that question. And his answer was basically, we have our philosophy and that we are full trust in this scheme and every other coordinator that runs a different defense is going to have full trust in their scheme as well. And we believe we know how to coach it right and iron out those kinks. And if it doesn't start going well, I don't think you're going to see a drastic change. I don't think you're going to see all of a sudden them go, well, you know, this isn't working. We got to, we got to change things up because there's been times in history and plenty other stops at other teams where it wasn't working to start either. And it took sometimes three years to work, but when it did, it worked really well. And it took time to get to that point. I think these coaches know that. And I don't think it's going to be that much of a difference. You said something about audibling that personally I am 100% for. And I think would do a a large part in fixing some of those predictability problems, because when the players can pick up on tendencies on the field better than the coaches maybe can on the sidelines, they need to be given the freedom to adjust plays and and make a difference. Like we saw CJ Mosley do against the Titans where he wasn't literally allowed to do so. And Robert Sala himself says, and when he was asked by the media after the game, he did something a linebacker in our system has never done before and changed to play at the line of scrimmage. You know why they don't allow their players to do that? For the same reason it's their philosophy to start with. They don't want them thinking. They don't want them at the very last second trying to call in a different audible and change the defense and adjust and one guy doesn't hear it and it leads to a miscommunication and a coverage bust. It all goes back to that philosophy of we're going to be reactive. We want to just fan out our coverage, have seven on the back end, trust our front four to get home, and we're going to keep everything in front of us and rally and tackle. You know where we're going to line up. We know how you're going to attack us. It's about who's going to be the faster faster man of the ball, who's going to make the bigger hit, effort, violence, technique, all of that that they preach. I don't think you're going to see much of a change. This is what I think needs to be done. And it's so simple. Start disguising your coverages. It's That is the thing for me. You don't need to become Wink Martindale. You don't need to become Bill Belichick. 
You don't need to be morphing into a different defense every week based on whatever opponent you're playing. You don't need to become a, a cover zero press man team that that draws up exotic blitzes and sends linebackers from, from every gap under the sun. You just have to make it a little harder for that offense and that quarterback to guess what you're doing or know what you're doing and make them hitch and give some extra time for that D-line to do what they're supposed to do. So for me, it's as simple as disguising your coverage on the back end slightly more often. They do it a little bit, but they really don't do it enough and they don't do it enough early in the game. That's what I would like to see. Come out in a too high shell. Have one of your safeties right at the last second, come down, have the other one rotate deep. You can still play cover three, but the quarterback is going to take that extra half second and that extra hitch to go, oh, wait, the safety wasn't too high and the middle of the field was open and now it's closed and the route that I thought was going to be there isn't. Now I have to get to another progression. And it's not like what we've seen through the preseason so far, which is I'm expecting this guy to be open. He's my first read. It's cover three. That's what I'm getting pre-snap, post-snap. Yep, cover three. He's open, throw it eliminate that. And I really think this defense takes off. I don't think it needs a massive change. You mentioned something there doing it more early in games. There's been so many instances with this team where they allow the team, the opposite team to really get on them early. Uh, and they're playing catch up throughout the, the rest of the game because of it. So yes, if we can do even that early in the game, throw a wrinkle at these offenses that they're not ready for, it will put them on their heels because you said before, this defensive philosophy is a passive one. And I know people are hearing passive defense. How is that possible with, uh, with, with, when you have the front four that's uh, in attack mode all the time, but like you said, it's passive on the back end and it's something that allows offenses to dictate the games. And just doing this small little thing can maybe bring the edge a little bit back in our favor. And like like I said, early in games, the important part for that, too, is then you can do something where you run it early in games. You show cover two and you rotate to cover three later in the game when you're actually running cover two and you're not disguising it. The team might think you're disguising it. They might think you're running a real a cover three instead, and they're going to call a play that's going to beat cover three instead of cover two. And then it's post snap and it's, oh, wait, it was cover two. And we called the wrong play. That bit of hesitation. That's that's what this scheme is built on is is creating hesitation in quarterbacks and taking away their time to think to where the pass rush is going to be breathing down their neck. They're going to have to get the ball out early and then we can have our guys come up and rally and tackle or the corners are going to be sticky. They're going to have their eyes on the passer. He's going to be rushed. He's going to throw a pass early. They're going to be able to jump and break on it and make a play. Help out your back end. Make it easier for them to do what they're supposed to do. Don't just give free answers to a quarterback and you don't need a a giant crazy change in philosophy. You don't need to fire Ulbrich and find a new defensive coordinator. You just need to do some things a little bit differently and add a little more doubt into offenses binds so that they don't know what you're doing the second they come out of the huddle. Because when I tell you that when I watched that opening drive and I said, cover three, okay, check. Next play, Falcons weren't even set yet. Cover three, got it, check. And it was like that every single time. The Falcons put in any little motion check they wanted to confirm it and the Jets fell for the bait like hook, line, and sinker. That needs to change. If that changes, I think we're going to see a big, big, big change in this defense and a big improvement in this defense. I am looking forward to seeing how the season goes, 
because I do think that might takes a little bit of forcing them into it. But I'm hoping that we're going to have the talent in the secondary to pull this off. And I'm hoping that our coaching staff is going to see that it's necessary because otherwise we might be in for another rough year. Yeah, absolutely. So to sum up or what I think to sum up what we both feel is to be concerned, but to have patience and to have trust in these guys who have had success everywhere they've been doing the same exact thing. Uh, Am I, am I right with that? No, you're right. They've earned the right to be trusted. They've earned the right to be given time. They've earned the right to, to add new players to this roster that was depth devoid of talent. And now we've seen players that they've added in, in spades that we haven't gotten to see in, in full force yet. There's reasons to be hopeful. There's reasons to be doubtful. But I don't think that we need to be firing our defensive coordinator I don't think anyone who says, oh, Sala doesn't know what he's doing and his defenses were always terrible is not is, is, is not telling the truth. Quite honestly, they're not. Because the only constant person as a member of, the, of a defensive scheme on every single team in the last 10 to 15 years that's run this defense and been successful at it, the only guy that's been at every single stop is Robert Sala. That matters. It does. I'm sorry if people don't agree with that, but it's the truth. In Sala, we trust. And Sala, we trust. That's what we have to. All right, Matt, let's go ahead and get out of here. We got the final preseason game coming up with the New York Giants this Sunday. They had another day of joint practices with the Giants today. I'm assuming that will continue on through tomorrow. Uh, probably not Saturday, although I'm not sure the exact schedule. Sala did mention that this is something they want to try and do in perpetuity in the future especially in the preseason because the teams are right next to each other and it makes more sense to play against teams you're not used to. He said he has a good relationship with Dayball. So after a long time of the Jets and Giants not having joint practices together, it seems like this is about to be a common occurrence. We are going to be right back here Sunday night after the game to wrap things up on preseason as a whole, look ahead towards the regular season. So make sure you guys stay tuned for that. And I'm sure we will talk real soon. Matt, you know what to do. Uh, Matt, you could find me on Twitter at Zazzy Jets. And you can find me at Andrew Golden underscore 17. You can also follow the show at OKD podcast as well. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back real soon. And hopefully the Jets will close out an undefeated preseason for the second year in a row. Thanks again. Bye-bye.